Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Rookie, season one of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. The Rookie is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit slash The Rookie. The plants looked just like Carsenji grass, but the blades blazed a fluorescent orange. Black lines and numbers popped off the field in stark contrast. First offensive play of the game. Kraken's ball, first and ten from their own 33. Is that what I think it is? Are those idiots in woman-to-woman when I've got three burners on the field? Bada-bap went his hands on the center's carapace. Forget ball control. Let's go downtown. Flash! Flash! Quentin shouted. Heads and eye stalks turned to look at him waiting for the audible. He was changing the play at the line. Blue 22, he shouted down the left side of the line. Haywick had been lined up three feet to the left of Rick Warburg. Haywick jogged another 10 yards to the left, almost to the sideline, her defender following. She stopped, stood, and waited for the snap. Blue 22, he shouted down the right side of the line. Scarborough and Mezquitic stood at five and seven yards, respectively, away from the right tackle Vuko Will. Mezquitic on the line of scrimmage, Scarborough one step back from it. With the audible, Mezquitic took one step forward, while Scarborough took a step back, then went in motion to the sideline, a slow jog that took her 15 yards out. Blue 22! Quentin shouted behind him. Tom Perlis and Mitchell Fayed had been in an eye formation. Tom in a three-point stance, Fayed two yards behind him, hands on his knees, head up high. They quickly adjusted so that they stood side by side in a pro set. Quentin turned back to the line. Hut, hut! The line erupted with crashes and clacks and grunts for the game's first trench battle. Perilous and Fayed each took a step up and a step outside, where they crouched, waiting for the first opportunity to block. Quentin dropped straight back slipping between the two running backs like they were centurions guarding some ancient gate. Haywick and Mezquitic shot downfield on streak patterns, while Scarborough ran forward for 15 yards, then angled to the middle of the field on a post pattern. Those patterns drew single coverage from the two cornerbacks and the safety. Quentin watched the free safety, the key to the play. Haywick and Scarborough were both running even with their defenders, but Quentin could tell they still had an extra step in their gas tanks. The safety ran to the outside to pick up the Kraken's most deadly threat, Haywick. And that was all Quentin needed to see. He cocked his arm and threw just as Tom Perilous undercut the first key defender that broke through the line. The ball arced downfield. Not a perfect spiral this time, but marred by a tiny bit of wobble. It didn't look pretty, but it was on target. 
Scarborough remained step for step with her defender for another two seconds, then put on a sudden burst of speed that took her just a few feet past. She timed the ball perfectly, leaping high into the air to catch the ball without a single mid-air twist or turn or alteration. The defender reached for her, but Scarborough kicked out with her right leg, hitting the defender in the chest. The blow knocked the defender back, just a bit, and when the two hit the ground, she had a good three steps of clearance, more than any Sklorno needed just 15 yards from the goal line. Scarborough ran into the end zone. First play from scrimmage, a 67-yard touchdown strike. The rest of the game brought more of the same. Quentin had never felt so in sync before, not even in his purest nation days. He knew exactly where his receivers were at all times. The receivers seemed to read his thoughts, breaking off patterns to find the ball already in the air, moving to open spots in perfect time with any of Quentin's scrambling efforts. He saw every defender, every disguised coverage, every blitz. He saw the sideways rolling Quith Warrior linebackers and knew when they would pop up into a pass-covered stance. When he ran, he knew when they would lean in for the tackle, when their balance was all forward, and that told him just when to spin. Juke moves didn't work on them, but half the time spin moves left them falling flat on their face. He saw key defensive linemen raging past his offensive line. He saw them gather and knew when to step forward just as they released, springing violently forward to grasp only empty air. He saw the speed and timing of the Sklorno defensive backs and knew just where to throw to avoid them. He even saw a safety blitz and two corner blitzes, but each time he threw in a fraction of a second, hitting the open receiver before the streaking defensive back could close on him. Nothing could touch him. The Kraken's defense played its best game of the season. Aside from one long run by Chuch Matumbo, the survivor's tailback, the defense shut down everything. By the end of the third quarter, the Krakens were up 28-7 and in clear control of the game. That was when disaster struck. Third and three on the survivor's 35. Quentin surveyed the defense. He could have audible to a slant pass because the linebacker was cheating inside, but opted to go with the called play, a sweep to the right. He didn't want to put the ball in the air now, nothing that might give the survivors a chance to get back in the game. Dressed in metallic silver jerseys, leg armor, and helmets, the survivors' defense looked like a bunch of old-time science fiction robots, ones that had been through a losing battle and were now covered in orange grass stains, dirt, and blood. Lots of blood. Still, they weren't giving up, and even though they were having their asses handed to them, the survivors' defense fought as hard as they could on every play. Hot, hot! The ball slapped into Quentin's hands. He pivoted backwards off his right foot, coming all the way around before softly pitching the ball to Fayed. Already moving right, Fayed caught the ball and ran parallel to the line of scrimmage. Kopor the climber out in front to block. Shodo Thicket, the left guard, stepped back and pulled to the right, giving Fayed two blockers on the quick pitch. The play's design was simple. Get outside as fast as possible and try to cut up and out. 
A good block on the outside linebacker could leave Fayette one-on-one with the slender Sklorno defensive backs. A punishing equation that would almost always end with Fayette driving the defender back for positive yards, if not breaking the tackle outright for a big gain. Quentin watched the three Kraken sweep right. Orange jerseys with black numbers and orange trim, orange leg armor with black piping, orange and black helmets. The outside linebacker, a powerful heavy G giant from Rodina named Sven Dropner, drove upfield as the middle linebacker, Kylie Cannell, used his impressive speed to dash towards the sidelines, trying to stay just inside of Fayed's left shoulder, preventing an inside cutback that could go for big yards. Dropner crashed forward like a tank. Shoto Thicket tried to reach him, but Dropner stepped to the left tackle's outside shoulder and drove past, batting away strong key arms like some mere annoyance. Shoto Thicket gathered and leapt, but it was too late. Kopor stepped up and met Dropner head on. The resulting collision sent a clack so loud it was heard in the upper deck, even over the roar of the crowd. Kopor was knocked back as if he were a child, rolling feet overhead right into Fayed. Fayed reached one arm down as his feet came off the ground. His extended hand met Kopor's shoulder pad. Fayed pushed off quickly, an amazingly athletic move, his arm absorbing the shock. Instead of being knocked over, he was simply knocked back. His lithe feet landed on the ground. He stumbled once, then recovered and headed for the sidelines. Fayed's athleticism was a wonder to behold, but Cannell was no slouch. He used Fayed's momentary stumble to close the gap. Cannell dove, his big fingers grabbing handfuls of Fayed's jersey. Fayed's strong legs pumped away, dragging the prone 420-pound Cannell along the ground. Defensive back Toppenaby raced upfield at top speed, a silver streak headed for the encumbered Fayed. Fayed started to lower his shoulder, but like a water skier bouncing up from some trick, Cannell slid to his feet, his fingers still deeply wrapped in Fayed's jersey. With a primal grunt, Cannell planted his feet and swung. The motion first stopped Fayed cold, then ripped him in a blurring, backwards, horizontal arc. At the end of the arc, almost 360 degrees from where he started, the orange jersey blur met the oncoming silver jersey Toppenaby with a crack that made the dropner kopor collision sound quiet by comparison. Quentin winced as the two came together. The crowd owed in amazement, most of them probably wincing themselves. Cannell pounded his chest, playing to the crowd. Toppenaby slowly rose to her feet, stumbled, then fell. Fayed didn't get up. His foot twitched, and the fingers of his left hand opened and closed spasmodically, but he didn't get up. He was laying face down. Actually, He should have been face down because his stomach and chest were on the ground, but his face was actually looking up. Oh, hi, one, Quentin said, then ran to his teammate. Fayed's eyes were wide with terror. He tried to breathe, but couldn't seem to draw air. His head was turned so far around, he could have almost looked down and seen his own spine. Fayed, Quentin said. He reached for his teammate, then kept his hands away, remembering someone telling him once not to touch a head or neck injury. The banana! Meteors! Fayed said. His foot kept twitching, but his hand suddenly stopped the spasmodic opening and closing. The fingers froze in mid-move, curled rigid like a talon. 
Quentin was distantly aware of a med sled racing out, of Doc fluttering down next to Fayette. Quentin felt a hand, or a tentacle he didn't know, grab his shoulder and gently pull him back. Doc pulled a laser scalpel from his bag and deftly sliced off Fayette's back armor. Doc then applied a small rectangular device. He punched a few buttons on the device, then pressed it against Fayette's back. There was a sickening squelching sound as tendrils reached out of both sides of the device and penetrated Fayette's skin, curving in toward his spine. A soft orange light started flashing on the device. Blink, 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 blink. Doc zipped to the med sled and maneuvered it over the top of Fayette's body. The metallic tendrils reached down. The med sled lifted, and Fayette rose off the ground without his body moving an iota, like some magician's trick of levitation. Doc flew off the field, the med sled moving behind him, slowly, so as not to jostle Fayette. As the cart and patient slid noiselessly toward the tunnel, Quentin's sharp eyes remained fixated on the orange light. Blink, blink. Blink, blink. Blink. Then, nothing. Before Fayed slid into the tunnel, Quentin knew that the orange light had stopped flashing. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Remote island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. He finished the game. He didn't know how he did it but he did it nonetheless. He even scored another touchdown, this one a 12-yard run. He had to do the running himself. Yasud's face went pale each time Hokor called his number and ran with all the intensity of a galley cook. When the game was on, Quentin didn't have to think about it. He either ran the offense on the field, every last scrap of his intellect devoted to analyzing the defense, or he sat on the sidelines, intently studying a holo table of the last series in case he found a weakness to use on the next possession. But when the final seconds ticked off the clock and the scoreboard read Kraken's 35, Survivor's 7, he didn't have anything else to distract him. The team gathered in the central meeting room. Holcourt stood in front of the holo board as usual. Except this time, his eye wasn't black or orange or even pink. It was a deep purple, opaque purple. 
Quentin had never seen that color before, but somehow he knew exactly what it meant. First of all, I want to sing all your praises for a hard-fought game, Okor said. We played and won as a team. I have very little to say of negative things. The INF Krakens are now the champions of the Quint Irradiated Conference. A half hour ago, that same phrase would have drawn a deafening roar from the assembled players. Now, it was met with silence. A silence broken only by some human trying to clear phlegm from his throat. We have lost one of our warriors, Hokor said. He looked down at a palm top. Mitchell Fay had suffered a severed spinal cord and a collapsed lung. Doc tried to use a golfier spinal cord controller to regulate Fayette's breathing and heart rate, but there was too much damage too soon. Attempts to repair the damage and reanimate him failed. There was a loud sob. Quentin looked over to the source of the sound. John Tweedy, big, dangerous, deadly John Tweedy, sat on a bench, his elbow on his knee, his forehead propped on his hand, his eyes squeezed shut, his solid shoulders shaking in time with his sobs. The noise seemed to open a dam of emotion. Other humans started sobbing, or sniffing, or coughing to hide their self-perceived weakness. One of the key linemen produced a long, serrated knife. They passed it from one to the next, taking turns cutting a long gash into their own upper left arm. With each cut, black blood spilled down in a noisy, splattering rivulet spreading out across the tile floor. They're letting their own blood so it can join Fayette's blood on the field of battle. Masal the Efficient silently slipped out of the Quith Warrior locker room. He walked over to Virak the Mean, who sat limply on the floor. Masal opened the box and removed a metallic, pen-like instrument. The instrument hummed lightly as Masal started moving it across the chitin on Virak's left forearm. Chodo the Bright stood behind Virak. Killick the Unworthy behind him, a line of Quith warriors slowly forming. Quentin didn't recognize the new writing on Virak's carapace, but he knew it was a Quith rendition of Fayed's name. It stunned Quentin to see a human name being engraved on a warrior. But that's what Fayed's constant, punishing work ethic had meant to everyone. Quentin felt cold. Fayed had been on the field with him, battling away, not even an hour ago. And now he was gone. Horrible injuries were part of the game. Big bodies, strong bodies, and speed. Force equals mass times acceleration. Beings got hurt, but then beings got fixed. All the plaques he'd seen in all the stadiums, commemorating those who died on the field, it had seemed somehow distant. Something from the game's past. From before the reality that embraced him once he joined the ranks of the elite. Fayed was dead. Quentin wasn't about to let that death be for nothing. He looked at Donald Pine. Instinctively, he expected Pine to stand and say something, anything, talk of how the team would win for Fayed. But Pine said nothing. He just sat there, head bowed. He was a disgraced man. Even though the team didn't know it, he knew it. Pine was broken. His mantle of leadership, gone. With sudden clarity, Quentin realized that he now held that mantle. Something had to be said, and he was the only one who could say it. 
the team started to head to their separate dressing rooms when Quentin stood and spoke. I, I need to say a few words. The players stopped where they were. They looked back at him. They looked at him in the same way he had just looked at Pine. They wanted someone to lead them. Fad, he... Quentin started to talk, but his voice cracked. He felt his throat thicken, felt tears try to fight their way out of his eyes. He held his eyes shut tight and took a deep breath. The machine. He was a great running back. All he wanted to do was play tier one ball. It was his dream. Quentin looked around the room, in turn staring each player in the eye. His voice suddenly changed from on the verge of tears to a cold steel baritone that rang through the soul of every being in the room. He's still with us. He's still on this team. And if we make it to tier one, he makes it to tier one. No one in this room will let him down. Coach, who do we play? Hocourt tapped a button on his palm top. We have the second best record in the tournament based on a point scored tiebreaker with the Texas Earthlings. That means we have a bye in the first round. We play the winner of the Texas Earthlings and the Errol Archers. Quentin nodded slowly. A bye. That means we are automatically in the semifinals. We win that game, that one game, and we're in Tier 1. We win that game, and Fayed gets his dream. Tweedy's sobbing slowed, becoming just a sniffle. I don't care who steps on that field, Quentin said. Earthlings, archers, it doesn't make any difference. Either way, they're going down. Quentin nodded once, then walked to the human locker room. League Roundup, courtesy of Galaxy Sports Network. The INF Krakens, 7-2, completed their improbable comeback, winning their sixth straight game 38-13 over the Quith Survivors, 3-6. With the win, the Krakens locked up the Quith-irradiated conference title and earned a trip to the Tier 2 playoffs. The Glory Warpigs, 7-2, finished up an excellent season with a 25-13 win over the Big Diggers, who are 3-6. The Wichock Pioneers, 6-3, look ready for next year as quarterback Condor Adrian threw for five touchdowns in a 52-27 thrashing of the Sheb Stalkers, 4-5. Also in action last week, the Woo Wall Crawlers, 4-5, upset the Grontac Hydras, 4-5, by a score of 17-14, and the Orbiting Death, 6-3, pounded on the Sky Demolition, 1-8, by a score of 37-10. Death! Mitchell the Machine Fayette, Killed on a clean hit by Toppenaby, free safety for the Quith Survivors. Week 9 Players of the Week. Offense, Jew Tweedy, running back, orbiting death. 205 yards on 32 carries and 3 TDs. Defense, Bray Ohaka, tackle Woo Wall Crawlers. 4 sacks and 7 tackles.
You have been listening to The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League Series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.